Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, beginning in verse 13. And they sent to him, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Yes, we are about to talk about God and politics. What's that? Oh, yeah. (laughs) My name's Jonathan. I'm one of the elders here at Mac Avenue Community Church. Um, And I'm really grateful to have you guys here. Um, Because of the nature of the subject that we're going to discuss this morning, I'm going to approach the sermon a little bit differently. Usually, I I rarely use notes, and I'm heavy on slides, and today I'm going to be reading a lot more than normal, in part because I really want to underscore how important the subject is and how careful we have to be in the language we use and the things that we say. Um, So that's the work that I put in on my end. What I'm going to ask you guys to do as the congregation is to put some work in on your end, too, from the standpoint of just being engaged and focused, but also being humble and open-minded on this topic. It is one that we have all developed really strong opinions on, um, and I think it's really important that we recognize both me at the pulpit and you in the congregation how far we have to go in understanding this topic. And so that's, that's what I ask of you guys. Um, just a couple of other comments and clarifications. For those of you guys who are new here, we welcome questions during the sermon. And so if there's something that I say that's confusing or uh, just, just doesn't make sense, please raise your hand and get my attention and I will pause the sermon and, and answer. Um, and then if you would like a Bible, there are some in front of you. Um, I will have quite a few on the screen. Not all of the passages I referenced, though, will be written out. So you may want to follow along in the Bible in front of you. Um, and then again, just a few clarifying points. Throughout the sermon, I'm going to be using the words government and state interchangeably. So I don't want you to get confused and think that when I use the word state, I'm referring to like the state of Michigan or the state of Maine. I'm talking about governments as a whole. Um, Another thing to keep in mind is that the passages that we're studying don't necessarily have in mind a participatory form of government that we live in today. The biblical authors didn't live in governments that were democracies. Um, The people who got to be involved in governments were rulers, not the everyday people. And so in our case, because we participate in the government, we are kind of a piece of the government. And that layer between the people and the government is not as clear today as it was in the Bible. And I think that should just caution us in having really dogmatic opinions on this subject, especially when we're interpreting scripture. Um, And then the last thing I would say, just very clearly, is that this sermon is not about who you should or should not vote for or what you should and should not vote for. It may feel that way sometimes because you may have some things challenged, um, but that's not my purpose. I'm not standing here teaching you which party or policy uh, you should support. There are times where our politics should be informed by our theology as Christians, no doubt. 
Um, but as we'll discuss later, I want to be really wary and cautious of teaching that Christians should affirm a certain kind of policy. So with that, let's pray and uh, jump into this passage. Father, just as we sing moments ago, you are worthy, the lamb that was slain, high and lifted up, that all the world would praise your name. It is so easy at times to get weary in our faith and to rely on other means to accomplish what we think we need to do as Christians. And and one of the ways we can do that, Lord, is to feel that we need to do our job as Christians through the state. And I pray we'd be wary of that. I pray that we would sit humbly at your feet here in Mark 12 as you, Jesus, were confronted with a major political controversy of the day and chose to completely sidestep it and to choose a middle way, Lord. And I pray that we would learn from that this morning. Give us wisdom, humility, and clarity of mind as we engage this passage. Amen. So, I don't need to tell you why today's subject is important. I don't need to use examples or mention articles or tell stories. Because more than likely, you've already lived too many examples, you've read too many articles, and you've probably heard way too many stories on this subject. There's no question that today, American Christianity is confounded by politics. The church is stumbling around in the dark, and she has the stub toes to prove it. So does Christianity have a vision for the state? Does the Bible have anything to say on this subject? Or, as some have criticized, is American Christianity so heavenly-minded that it is of no earthly good? Marx and Freud condemned Christianity as a pacifying opiate for the people, while communists feared its revolutionary implications. Some empires considered Christianity treasonous, while others manipulated Christians to achieve their own imperial goals. In the name of Christ, some Christians have justified violent crusades and inquisitions, while other Christians, also in the name of Christ, have retreated from society into monasteries and Amish communities. Today, political pundits, think tanks, and talk shows spend hundreds of hours and millions of dollars analyzing the Christian vote. Older Christians lament all the dramatic social change that's happened over the past half century, where today it is more socially acceptable for a spouse to divorce his or her spouse than it is to pray in a public school. But then younger Christians become increasingly frustrated with the politics of their parents' generation. Cynical Christians have in many cases just given up on government altogether, and non-Christians, most of the time I just cringe thinking about what they think about the church and politics. So what does Jesus have to say about all of this? How should a Christian think about his or her relationship to earthly governments? That is the subject of our sermon today. And we're going to begin in the Gospel of Mark. And while our text, the main text, is brief today, its subject matter is deep and wide, and we're going to begin by examining the context of the passage beginning in Mark 11. So if you turn to Mark 11, you'll see that at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus arrives at Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. He arrives with thousands of other Jewish pilgrims to participate in Passover. He enters the city on Sunday, riding a donkey, welcomed as the king of the Jews. The very next day on Monday, Jesus cleanses the temple of money changers and vendors. Is it not written, he laments, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the people were astonished by this. That same day, the local religious leadership known as the Sanhedrin, 
begin to scheme against Jesus. They feared his ministry would inflame a city that had become a political and theological tinderbox. By the next day, Tuesday, the Sanhedrin confront Jesus head-on in the temple. They imply that he lacks the authority to do the things that he has done and to teach the things that he has taught. Jesus responds to that confrontation with a question of his own. And he traps the chief priests between theological and political pressure points. And what begins as an effort to undermine Jesus' credibility ultimately ends in the Sanhedrin's public humiliation. And then Jesus adds insult to injury by teaching the parable of the tenants, beginning at the start of chapter 12. It's a parable that clearly implies that he is God's son, and that he's returned to reassert his claim over his people, but that in so doing, he would be rejected and tragically killed by his people. The Sanhedrin were furious by this. They knew that he was teaching the parable against them, but they couldn't do anything about it because they feared the people would rise up in Jesus' defense. And so they retreat, and they scheme, and they find new allies, and they launch a new trap. That's where we reach today's passage in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. I'm going to read it again because these words are really important. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we, are, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now notice who the Sanhedrins have sent to confront Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Now the Pharisees were primarily a religious group of devout Jews. They were as anti-Rome as anyone came, and they longed for the day that the kingdom of David would be returned and the Jewish people would be free of the Roman conquerors. On the other hand, the Herodians are as pro-Rome as they come. They were a political party. They were allied to King Herod, of Herod Antipas. He was the Roman-appointed king of the Jews. These people did nothing together. They had nothing in common. They were theological and political enemies. So the question is, why are they allying themselves together here? It's clear, and that's because Jesus' ministry threatened both of them. It threatened both the theological and political order of the day. And both of them have an interest in seeing his ministry derailed. And so they pose a question to Jesus. And the question is a genius question. If we don't understand the context and the history of what's going on, we'll miss it. Taxes were a bitter subject for the Jewish people, though not for the reasons that you might think. While Jews did pay a lot of taxes, local taxes, temple taxes, taxes to Herod, their anger stemmed more from what those taxes represented. And the head tax, the one that is mentioned here, was by far the worst of all. So for over the last 500 years, the Jewish people had been a conquered people, and they had been subject to empire after empire after empire. That political reality of being conquered had deep theological implications for the culture of that day. In that era, when one nation conquered another, that said as much about the military supremacy of the conquering nation as it did about the theological supremacy. If one nation beat the other, that meant the nation that won, their God was greater than the other. 
And so the Jews, as subjugated people, were humiliated by their status as a conquered people. And taxes only made that worse. In 6 AD, the Roman Empire imposed a head tax, or a census tax, on the Jewish people. And that tax reminded Roman subjects that their heads belonged to the empire. Each Roman subject was to pay one denarius, which was equal to a day's wage for the common worker. It wasn't expensive. It was in many ways trivial. But again, it reminded the Jewish people that they belonged not to themselves, but to their conquerors. The coin itself is also interesting because on each denarius was an image of Tiberius Caesar, the Roman Caesar at the time. And each denarius included an inscription. It read, Tiberius Caesar, son of the god Augustus, Pontifus Maximus, or high priest. In other words, by paying this tax with that coin, Roman subjects were reminded that they were owned politically and theologically by Rome. And so within a decade of this tax being levied by Rome, someone named Judas the Galilean leads a revolt against the Roman Empire. He also marches into Jerusalem. He also is welcomed as a king. He also cleanses the the temple. He's also a Galilean. And he is crushed by the Roman authorities for his rebellion. Now, the undercurrent of tax revolt, though, doesn't die with him. And the Pharisees and Herodians are mindful of that when they lay this trap. And they're also mindful of the obvious parallels between Jesus, who has entered Jerusalem, who has entered as a king, who was a Galilean, who just cleansed the temple, who preaches the kingdom of God. And so they decide to lay this trap, knowing that whichever answer they get that Jesus gives, he will lose. If Jesus answers yes, then he'll be viewed as a Roman collaborator by his Jewish followers, and they would feel betrayed by him. They would consider all his claims about the kingdom of God to be hollow and empty. And Jesus would ultimately be alienated from his people, just like the Sanhedrin wanted. But if Jesus answers no, that they should not pay taxes, then he would be seen as a political criminal. And like Judas the Galilean, he would be crushed by the Romans. Rome would treat Jesus' open rebellion as the beginning stages of an armed revolt. No matter the answer that Jesus gives here, he'd be faced with humiliation, alienation, maybe even death. And the Pharisees and Herodians know this. They've designed a heads-I-win, tails-you-lose kind of conundrum. The stakes are really high, and yet Jesus is able to see through that trap, sidestep the entire Judeo-Roman political fray, and asks to see a denarius. And actually, what I would really like is if one of the kids in service here could grab a quarter from their parent, uh, I would really appreciate that. And if they could bring it up for me to use, uh, that would be great. It's important to keep in mind, too, with this coin, just as an aside, this stuff was actually minted from Tiberius's own wealth. So it's not like this was currency that was made by the government. Tiberius actually, in his own money, minted this stuff. It was actually his property. Um, And he thought of it so personally that he criminalized taking a coin, a denarius, into the bathroom uh, because he thought of it so highly. The Jews also thought of it pretty highly, but in a different way. Thank you very much. They thought of it as idolatrous because of the image that was on it and because of the inscription declaring Tiberius as a god. So once Jesus receives the denarius, he asks a counter question. He asks whose likeness or image is on this and whose inscription. 
Now, image and inscription are two very deliberately chosen words by Jesus. They both come back to two commands that show up in the Old Testament. The first is the first and second commandment and the connection to the word image. We know that the second commandment says that you shall not make for yourself any false idols or images and bow down to them. That's connected to the first command, that you should have no other gods before you. That whole idea reminds the Jews that they only swear allegiance to God and no one else. So again, Jesus is using that word deliberately here. He's also using the word inscription. And that may have reminded Jewish listeners of the great Shema, which comes from Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 11, um, and also from Numbers 15. And it's translated as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall have no other gods before me. This command, this prayer, was a regular prayer of the Jewish people, and they were taught to actually inscribe those words on the city gates and their own house doorposts. So Jesus' words here are very deliberate. It's really ironic when you think about it. Jesus is standing here, he's holding a coin, and he has already been proclaimed king. He is the Son of God. He's standing in the Jewish temple, and on this coin... There's an image of an emperor who claims to be the son of God. It's one of the most ironic moments in all of scripture. Jesus knows this and he's exposing the Pharisees and Herodians by using these words and asking them, not him, them to show this coin in the temple, a coin that's idolatrous and pagan. Finally, then does Jesus answer the question, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, to the Roman audience, that answer might have sounded benign, maybe even supportive of Rome. After all, these coins were literally Caesar's. They came from his wealth. And yet, Jesus said so much more. It wasn't just a clever answer. His statement captured, I would argue, an entire biblical theology of government. So, as Jesus often does, He spoke volumes in a few words. And while I think we do need to be wary of proclaiming an exhaustive theology from this statement, I do think that there are implications in his statement, three in particular, that we can learn and that we can see how they intertwine with the rest of the Bible and what it has to say about God's people and government. And so the first principle that I think we can learn from his interaction with the Pharisees and the Herodians is that all governments are established and ordered by God. At the time Jesus spoke the words, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, they were probably startling. Jesus was permitting his listeners to use an idolatrous coin and pay oppressive taxes to a pagan emperor while he was subjugating the people of God. When Jesus declared that Jewish people can and should pay taxes to Caesar, Jesus was saying straightforwardly, that a pagan state is still a legitimate state. He was saying that governments, even those that oppose God, do not necessarily lose their legitimacy. And although these words may have been startling, Jesus' teaching is consistent with both what is taught in the Old Testament and the New Testament about government. Even though the Old Testament routinely denounced pagan nations, some of the prophets that were doing some of the loudest and the most enthusiastic denouncing also declared that God was working through those pagan nations for Israel's good and for God's glory. 
For example, think of Isaiah 10, where God uses the pagan nation of Assyria to purify and judge Israel. Or Isaiah 45, where God refers to Cyrus, a pagan king from another nation that is currently conquering the Jewish people, as his anointed. Or in Jeremiah 29, where God commands his people through the prophet Jeremiah to seek the welfare of the city and the nation that has conquered them. That command from Jeremiah was viewed so negatively that commentaries believe he was considered unpatriotic for telling the Jewish people to say that. So the Jewish people lived in this tension. They, they believed that God monitored sovereignly all the nations, and yet they also believed that these pagan nations were wicked and idolatrous and dangerous. And that tension is captured even in Jesus when, before his crucifixion, he tells Pontius Pilate that his Roman authority, the authority that Pilate will use to kill Jesus, comes from God. Both Jesus' statement and the Old Testament teaching are consistent with what is said in the New Testament, where Paul and Peter inspired early Christians to be good citizens, even when they were facing intense persecution. And from there, we can start with Romans 13, probably the central passage in the entire Bible on uh, what the scriptures have to say about government. Beginning in verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger, who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So, the overarching purpose of government, according to Paul here, is to create a lawful and orderly society out of what might otherwise be destructive, dangerous chaos. That doesn't mean that all actions taken by governments are valid or approved by God, but some government is necessary in a world of evil where sin flourishes. Paul makes it clear here that God uses government to keep law and order in the world, and for that reason, Christians are to be obedient as far as possible to whatever government they find in power over them. Christians should submit to their governing authorities, pay taxes, and they should leave their personal desire for vengeance to the wrath of the state's sword. As Paul states, even an emperor, who at this time was Nero, and as cruel and evil as him, can be God's servant for good. Now, this does not mean that governments are always using their God-given authority as intended. The Greek word that Paul uses here, tetajmenai, is probably best translated as to station or to arrange, as opposed to directing or leading. What Paul is saying, and N.T. Wright says this very well, is that God orders governments like books on a shelf. He brings them into line providentially and permissively for his own purposes. And as he did with pagan nations in the Old Testament, God uses governments as he finds them in all their godly and rebellious mess to serve his own providential purposes. 
And while many scriptures do wage a sustained attack against the abuse of power by human rulers, it is undeniable that God's will is for his creation to be ruled and governed by human authorities. St. Augustine noted this himself in the famous work City of God, where he also agreed that order is better than chaos, even though order can transform into tyranny, and as we know from history, it often does. Still, though our hatred of tyranny may lead us to the kind of violent revolution that we've seen in history, that's not the way of the people of God. The Bible teaches a different way, a very different way. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 2. Here, Peter is speaking to the church, also again, facing persecution and oppression. And he says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For, oh yeah, go ahead, Jamie. Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I think the next principle, which gets after Christian civil disobedience, we'll speak to that a little bit more. Um, and if you feel like it hasn't, then let me know and we can we can talk about it some more. But I think that's the natural question, right, is what do we do with these examples? Not just those, but even somebody like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany. Um, so I think, I think that's exactly the right question to be thinking about. But I think that gets addressed a little bit more in the next section. It's really important to get first, though, that the default principle is what Paul is talking about in Romans 13 and Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter. That as Christians, as far as we're able to, we should be subject to the governing authorities. So let's, let's continue there with 1 Peter 2. Um, again, Paul is, or Peter is saying to be subject for the Lord's sake, uh, picking back up in verse 15. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. So Peter's teaching here the same thing that Paul taught in Romans 12, that Christians are to overcome evil with good. And that when we live a peaceful, wise, and visibly good life, that is, in the end, far more revolutionary than overthrowing one corrupt regime and replacing it with what is likely to be another corrupt regime. And that's not going to be easy. As Christians, we're going to suffer and we're going to be persecuted and it's going to be unjust. And yet still, Peter's saying here in verse 17 that we must respect the emperor. Just like Jesus acknowledged the authority of Pilate as Pilate was about to lead him to his own execution. Let's go back even to Mark 12 and consider what Jesus said. If Jesus is teaching his followers to submit to Rome, then what government can't they support? This is the government that would go on to kill Jesus and most of his apostles, and Jesus is saying to his followers that they should pay taxes to that government. Not because Rome is in the right, but because government reflects in some measure the character of God. So what do we learn from all of this? We learn, for one, that human government is not legitimate because it manages the military or police. Human government isn't legitimate because of some social contract you learned about in government in college. It's not legitimate because of an election. It's not legitimate because of the Marxist idea that it's inevitable or we need it to, because we feel a need to control, be controlled. No, Jesus is clear. The prophets are clear. The apostles, they're all saying the same thing. Government in the world is legitimate because it is established by God. 
So, even when governments support immorality and sin, as, to be clear, all governments have since the fall, in some way, shape, or form, as Christians, at least as far as we can, we should continue to submit to our government and work to correct and improve it. We should be very, very slow to conclude that a government's action short-circuits its God-given authority and that Christians are justified in openly rebelling against that government. We should submit to the rulers and authority of the government over us. We should follow the laws. We should pay taxes. And we should thank God for all the good that there is in our government. And we should pray for the leaders of our government, that they would fulfill God's intentions to use government for its God-given purpose, preserving order and justice in society. So that's the first principle that we can see in this text when Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now let's talk about the second principle. And that is that all governments are influenced and polluted by Satan. Jesus could have ended his answer simply by saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he probably could have satisfied both parties. That would have been clever enough. But he didn't. Instead, he went on to say, give to God that which is God's. And when he said that, he contradicted the very words that were on the coin that they were all looking at. Right? On the coin, Tiberius says that he is a son of a god, and he refers to his father as a god. Yet here, in Jesus' statement, by saying, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's, Jesus is subversively showing that Tiberius is not God. And that while Jesus' people would follow the emperor, and they would submit to him, they would not worship him. And that is how Jesus is importing, he's affirming another important distinction that we see again in both the Old and the New Testament. While God does establish governments, Scripture also teaches that Satan, a fallen angel, who is actively working against God and his people, has the authority to influence and to accomplish evil through governments. And we know this perhaps most poignantly through Luke chapter 4, where the devil takes Jesus out into the wilderness to tempt him. Excuse me, the Holy Spirit takes Jesus out to, in the wilderness, but there the devil meets him to tempt him. So this is again in Luke chapter 4, starting in verses 1 and 2, and then continuing in verses 5 to 8. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And of course, Jesus answered him by saying, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only serve. So here the devil is clearly tempting Jesus with all the kingdoms of the world. He offers to give the authority Satan has to Jesus. And yes, Jesus refuses that option, but he does not dispute the devil's claim to have authority over these kingdoms. It seems as though the authority of all worldly kingdoms belongs in some measure to Satan. And it's not clear from this text whether that happened when humans fell in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, or whether maybe that was the authority that Satan possessed before he fell as an archangel of God. But however it came about, what's clear is that God's enemy and our enemy owns the authority of all versions of worldly government 
and he gives that authority to whomever he pleases. This teaching isn't just found here in Luke 4, it's found in the Old and New Testament. For example, in the book of Daniel, there's a demon who's described as the prince of Persia, as if he's responsible for that kingdom. And he there is able to battle another angel, Gabriel, to try and interfere with God's mission to Daniel. In the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of the world. On three different occasions in John 12, John 14, and John 16. And in each of those examples, Jesus uses the Greek word arche for ruler. That word is almost exclusively used in political contexts, and it refers to the highest ruling authority in a region. Paul refers to Satan in his epistles as the ruler of the power of the air in Ephesians 2 and as the god of this age in 2 Corinthians 4. In the book of Revelation, John describes the kingdom of the world as a single kingdom under the rule of Satan known as Babylon. And perhaps the most unsettling vision of this is where in chapter 13, John describes this evil kingdom as a monstrous beast opposing God. And then finally, in 1 John, in the Apostle John's own epistle, he teaches in chapter 5 that the entire world lies under the power of the evil one. So, while God does grant authority to governments to preserve law in a broken world, and while God orders governments to accomplish his own providential purposes, Satan, the destroyer who deceives the nations, as it says in Revelation, is involved in all of them, and he uses them to try and frustrate God's purposes. So while God reigns over all creation, Satan is still able to influence governments, pollute them, and contaminate the rule of earthly governments. And to some degree, I think that makes sense to us. It explains why our history is so full of violent conflict. The 20th century was supposed to be an era where through technology and advancement in society, we would have an era of peace. And instead, as we know, Millions and millions of people died as a result of some of the worst wars this world has ever seen. That tragic reality doesn't just testify to the depravity of humans. It shows the demonic influences in the world and how they orchestrate things like governments to achieve terrible ends. A pastor and author named Greg Boyd captures this idea and he uses Homer's Iliad and Odyssey to make the point. Because in both of those stories, they're really just describing humans who are driven by passions to get power, possessions, legacies, and uphold their own religions. And in every one of those stories, those humans run into other humans who also possess interests in getting their own power, possessions, and legacies. And all the while in the background, the Greek gods are inciting and inflaming those passions against one another to create wars and conflicts. And we don't just see this uh, in Homer. We see this in the recent Wonder Woman movie that came out. The whole idea in that film was that there was a God working behind the scenes to move people against one another. We even see this when we are half joking, half seriously talking about the Illuminati, where we think about this group of people in the background who are doing things and pulling strings. We have this sense as a people that it's not just us who are going around acting like fools. There's a spiritual dimension to it that is pulling in drawing and coordinating all of these things. Satan's influence is why we may, in limited circumstances, disobey government. So this goes back to Jamie's question. While obeying the government means uh, we should obey the government when it involves, uh, a government order involves a direct and straightforward command of God in disobeying that command. 
And when that happens, the Bible teaches a pattern of consistent Christian civil disobedience. So I want to be clear on that. We should be wary of openly disobeying the government. But when the government commands a Christian to disobey direct command of God, we should respond with Christian civil disobedience. And there are some really powerful examples of this, again, in the Old and New Testament. For example, in the book of Daniel, when the Jewish people are conquered by Babylon, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, four different Jews, are able to confront the empire of Babylon with their own forms of civil disobedience. They refuse to accept what they're commanded to do, whether that's worshiping idols or refusing to pray, and they tell their rulers that they must obey God rather than man. We also see this in the book of Acts, where after Jesus is raised from the dead and returns to heaven, the same Sanhedrin who try to plot and kill him and who think they're successful in doing so try to shut down the ministry of the apostles. The apostles, because they're in the Jewish tradition, still view the Sanhedrin as a kind of ruling authority over them, but they don't obey and they tell the Sanhedrin that they must obey God rather than man. So what can we learn from these passages? What are some practical things that we can keep in mind if we're ever caught between obeying a command of God and obeying the commands of our government? I think there are three basic principles that we see in both of those examples. First, an ultimate allegiance to God and to his laws. So when a government commands you to directly disobey a command of God, you must disregard that command from the government. Because if you were to follow the government's law, you would be obeying a lower law while contravening a higher law from God. But second, there's also here a commitment to nonviolence. When God's people disobey, they didn't resort to violence to reform and change the government. No, instead, in each case, they pleaded civilly and graciously, but with conviction for their case. And when they broke the law, this is the third principle, they accepted the consequences of their actions. There's no record here where the apostles or Daniel or his companions try to escape the consequences. In fact, in all of the examples in Daniel, uh, the, the Jews there in that case accept their consequences openly. They don't even try to flee. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go so far as to say that if God wants us to die in the flames today, we will. But we must obey God rather than man. And I don't think there's a better example of a Christian applying these three principles of Christian civil disobedience than Martin Luther King Jr. He too faced imminent danger that often tormented him physically and emotionally, yet his civil rights approach remained true to all three of these ideas. His letter from a Birmingham jail is probably the most poignant defense of following God's laws over man's, and it's written to other Christians. When King protested and marched, he was always nonviolent. And when he and his fellow advocates broke the law through sit-ins or protests without permits, they graciously accepted the consequences of their actions, they spent nights in jail, and then they continued to civilly disobey. There is a legitimate role for government, and we should be thankful for it, family. But if Romans 13 speaks of what the good that the government can do, then I think it's fair to say that Revelation 13 shows what kind of a monstrous beast government can be when it is influenced by Satan. And we must keep those tensions in mind as we navigate this difficult issue. So, we've discussed two principles so far. First, that all governments are established and ordered by God. But second, that Satan influences and pollutes those governments for his purposes. 
there's still one final principle left. And that's that Jesus teaches no earthly kingdom should be identified uniquely with God or his people. Now this is key. By affirming God's sovereignty over all governments on the one hand, and by affirming that governments remain polluted by Satan, Jesus here is unhitching his followers from any specific nation. His teaching meant that his followers were never to view themselves like the Jewish state or the Roman state where God and government were inseparable. God's people had in the past been called into a national political and theological covenant with God. That was true with Moses, the judges, King David, uh, the exile even, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ezekiel, and so on. However, the time of Israel existing as a nation that was distinct was just supposed to be a preview of what reconciliation could look like between God and man. That era is over with. God's people are no longer supposed to go and build a single God-following nation-state. Now, as a church, we are, as Pastor Mark Dever would say, international. We're not attached to one country. Back in Genesis 12, God foreshadowed this. He promised Abram that all people of the world would be blessed. He further foreshadowed this when Ruth and Rahab were integrated into the people of God as Gentiles. And he foreshadowed it more when Daniel was a ruler in a foreign government and Joseph was a ruler in a foreign government. And the Magi from the East visited Jesus when he was born. Today, as the people of God, we are free to participate in and live under whatever government there is, wherever we live. Christ taught his kingdom was not of this world. And until his kingdom is fully realized, his people, you and I, will live under the political reign of others. That is why Jesus turns his people to the nations before his ascension to heaven. And that's why brothers and sisters in Christ today have more in common with one another than citizens of the same country. That is why the kingdom that we seek to advance is not a government in this world, but the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, to be clear, could not be any more different than the kingdoms of this world. Worldly governments are seen. We know them by their monuments and their castles and their political boundaries and their elections. But in Luke 17, Jesus is really clear that people would not be able to point to his kingdom and say, look, here it is or there it is. Because, as the theologian J.I. Packer so clearly puts it, the kingdom of God exists wherever Jesus rules and reigns in the hearts of his people, his repentant and obedient people. Moreover, while worldly governments seek to make change in the world by way of might and military power, the opposite is true of the kingdom of God. As Martin Lloyd-Jones explains, when the world wants to change things, they send in the tanks. But the citizens of God's kingdom, those he's chosen, are agents of transformation by way of sacrifice, peacemaking, humility, and love. God uses the simpler things of this world to humble the proud and powerful. If we fail to understand this, family, if we fail to grasp the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, we are likely to make two mistakes, one, I think, leading to the other. Yeah, Darcy, go ahead. Oh, yeah. So Darcy's saying also for folks who couldn't hear that a lot of the passages that I've cited were used historically to justify slavery and particularly slavery that we saw in this country. And that's, that's true. That's just historically true. Um, and if you've heard me say, Darcy, that I think it's really simple, then I apologize, because I don't think that's my intent. I'm just curious how you would address the previous question. Sure. Like, is, so, 
Yeah, I think that's a really good question, and that kind of goes back to Jamie's question from before, too. Um, yeah, I, I think, and this is where I think this, the teaching is not as clear, um, I think the overarching teaching on this is nonviolence, and I think that when we give in to violence, we are recirculating the same patterns that happen in society um, that lead to more violence. Um, I think Jesus is really clear about that as well in the New Testament, um, that we are supposed to love our enemies, that he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Um, at the same time, there's no question that God used the people of Israel to do violence. Um, and I think our theology has to account for that. I don't think there's a simple answer for that that we could solve uh, in a quick question in a sermon. But I do think that the overall pattern, the overall line of thinking here is that nonviolence is the appropriate approach. It's most consistent with what God is teaching about governments and what Jesus modeled himself. And so, Jamie, to your question about like the, the American Revolutionary War, the idea that that war was fought over, over taxes, I think we kind of lionize the beginnings of our own country without really thinking about why. Um, and that, that's not a radical idea. There are a lot of conservative Christians who would say the same thing. Um, including many of my own professors at Cedarville University. Um, we kind of skip over that without really thinking about why that war was fought. That's certainly not as noble as, for example, the Civil War or World War II against the Nazis. Um, and I think that's where maybe things get a little trickier. And someone like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, to both of your questions, who was a Christian in Germany, who was a theologian, who was committed to pacifism, he ultimately chose to participate in a violent overthrow of Hitler. He lost and he died. Um, but even there, and Darcy, I think this goes to your point, Bonhoeffer never said that his participation was okay. What he said was that it was still wrong, but it was less wrong than allowing Hitler to continue. And so even in his, to his death, Bonhoeffer wrestled with that tension. And I think we all will, in our own lives, as we think about self-defense and also as we think about Government. I pray that we will never be so confronted by a government that we would even have to consider that. And if we do, my counsel is that we do so very carefully, very thoughtfully, and with the perspective of a lot of people, including those who do not agree with us. Because as both of you have pointed out, this is a really complicated subject. So um, I got two more questions. Edith. So, so Edith is asking in Exodus 21, there's a verse that says that if, um, I think if, if someone escapes, is that what it was? Kidnaps. kidnaps. Right. Sure. So if a kidnapper is caught, they should be put to death according to Exodus 21. I think that's a great example, Edith, of something we're going to be talking about here, which is fusing the laws of God, which specifically applied to the people of Israel at that time with the, the, the state that we live under today. And the church has made that mistake over and over again. Um, that is a mistake that it has made in Rome, in the Holy Roman Empire, um, in the American nation, and elsewhere, where we have taken laws that were supposed to apply specifically to the people of God as a model to the rest of the world and use them in our own country. And that was a mistake, and it led to confusion, and it led to the kind of abuse that you're talking about. So I would say that that would be a, a misapplication of that passage to try and turn that into law here. And I know you had a question too. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's probably a good question that we could talk about maybe after the sermon. Um, I think it's a really important one. Um, I think that Christian principles and Christian lifestyle 
Yeah, sorry. So the question was, does the Second Amendment uh, contradict some of the things we've been talking about today, or do the teachings that we've been discussing contradict the Second Amendment? Maybe. And maybe that's something we could talk about afterwards. But the, the overall idea... Uh, in the New Testament seems to be a commitment to nonviolence and to love our enemies, uh, including those who, who persecute and uh, oppress us. I'm going to take one more question, and then I know we gotta we got to keep going on. But go ahead, Kamal. So, uh, mm-hmm. I'll show you a way. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it's messy. I mean, it's it, it really is. But it's it's tough to look at the early church for two to three hundred years facing intense persecution, their families literally being ripped apart, and them hanging on teachings like that and saying, you know, this is awful. The tragedy we're facing is awful, but we're going to trust God in the midst of it. So, but that's something maybe we can talk about more after this sermon. So, I do want to talk about these two mistakes briefly, family. These are practical issues that if we don't, if we misunderstand how the kingdom of God is different from the kingdom of the world, I think we're prone to make these mistakes in everyday political discussions and, and topics. So the first mistake is this idea of um, the church theologizing politics. And let me explain what I mean by theologize. What I'm referring to is our tendency to heighten the stakes of our political debates and to infuse theological significance, meaning a Christian must do X or Y to be faithful to God, into our political preferences. In other words, policy X or Y is the best for society. Christians should not do this. Theology should inform our political preferences, and we should talk about those things with other Christians, and we should think deeply about who we want to support in different capacities in local and federal government, as well as their ideas. But we should never declare a specific policy, strategy, or tactic to be the one and only true one that Christians may follow. In the language that we use here at Mac, politics falls squarely in the realm of preferences, not principles. So consider a recent example, the Affordable Care Act. This has been in the news pretty much every day for the last month. Also known as Obamacare, it was uh, recently repealed in Congress in dramatic fashion. You may have seen pictures of John McCain, who at the last minute changes his vote, sticks his thumbs down, and basically changes the entire scope of the discussion. Um, Overlooked, of course, are two Republicans who had been uh, fighting the bill the entire time, but it was pretty dramatic nonetheless, and you've probably heard about it. Um, Some Christians would say that Christians must support the Affordable Care Act, and other Christians say that Christians must repeal the Affordable Care Act. And I would argue that neither are right. Christians should agree that humans should be treated with value, dignity, and worth, and they should agree that oppression is wrong and unjust. But that does not mean that Christians must bludgeon each other with their political views and declare that you are not a faithful Christian if you do not adhere to a specific political policy. And that same concept can be applied to poverty, environmentalism, and even abortion. Christians can and should agree that humans should work to end unjust systems of oppression. They should care for the environment, and they should fight to protect life inside the womb. But, but, they do not necessarily need to agree about the preferred political approach to achieve those aims. One Christian might prefer to stack the Supreme Court and make changes. One might prefer a state-by-state approach. One might prefer to avoid the entire legal process altogether and just work in the lives of people. 
Those are all policy differences, not theological differences. And when we infuse theology into political disagreements, we enter into a form of dangerous legalism that hurts the unity of the church. And I'm preaching this, this family, because I'm convicted by this as well. It is clear in Scripture that we need to be wary of this and wary of allying the church to a specific policy. Now, if we make that mistake and we don't miss this, we're going to make the next mistake. And that's the idea of the church wielding the sword. So when we theologize our politics, we begin to believe that passing the right laws and electing the right people and enacting the right policies will allow the church to take America back for God as a Christian nation. Family, we should be really wary of referring to any country as a Christian nation. Yes, some Christian principles influence the founding of the nation. Yes, some founders were Christians. That's true. And yes, the courts have recognized in decision after decision that Christianity has played a major role in the development of our country. But we must be wary of ever declaring that our culture or our government or our society is or ever was Christian. Consider a passage that gets cited all the time in these discussions, Second Chronicles 7. It's frequently cited when people want to see America become a Christian nation. And that passage says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Family, this promise from Second Chronicles is not for the United States of America. It was made to King Solomon at a time in antiquity. It's true, generally, that we should pray and humble ourselves and seek the favor of God, but that is not a promise to us today. That is a promise that was made thousands of years ago to a specific nation state created by God. The church is not the state, and the church should not seek to achieve its mission through the state. When the church confuses itself with the state and it attempts to co-opt the state's power, in almost every case it ends up corrupted and overwhelmed by the influence of power and authority. For example, in 4th century Rome, the Emperor Constantine was the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. Up to that point, Christianity was an oppressed minority religious group and it was suffering wave after wave of persecution. And yet, it was still known for sacrificial deeds of love, including responding to something called the Plague of Scipion, which was a form of smallpox where up to 5,000 people were dying a day and Christians were running into Rome when everybody else was running out to save as many lives as they could. That was Christianity for the first two to 300 years of its existence. Then Constantine shows up on the scene after claiming to see a vision of Christ before a battle that he won. And he nationalized it, and he popularized it, and he institutionalized Christianity. And as a result, Christianity was transformed from a community of persecuted, self-sacrificial, loving people into a political power structure that was co-opted by Constantine and Rome. And it was then used... Uh, by political powers in Rome and elsewhere to justify wars after wars after wars. Let us not forget that we are ambassadors of the gospel, not soldiers for some kingdom. The battles we fight are never against flesh and blood. They are against evil satanic forces. And that's why we must be wary of ever trying to commandeer the state to achieve or protect our interests. We certainly shouldn't do that out of fear. Christians have nothing to fear. As Pastor Mark Dever once said on this very same subject, Christians are like cockroaches. We can survive anything. 
Neither the kingdom of God nor its gospel depends on government to go forward. The church has survived persecution for thousands of years. We always have. We always will. Family, we are indeed called to win America back for God, but not just America. We are called to preach the gospel to all nations, to Mexico, to Korea, Afghanistan, the United Kingdom, the Sudan, and the rest of the world. The question, though, is in what power are we going to trust? If we think for a moment that we are fulfilling the Great Commission by using the power of the sword to control behavior, we're deceived. We overcome not by the power of the sword, the Bible says, but by the blood of the Lamb and by the testimony of Jesus Christ. So, as, as we conclude, and I know we've talked about a lot, and I know there have been a lot of questions, I want to make sure that we don't miss one really important part of what Jesus is saying back in Mark 12. When he answers the Pharisees and the Herodians, he uses the word image or likeness in his counter question. And that isn't just hearkening back to the second commandment. That's going back to Genesis uh, chapter 1, where we learn that you and I and all of us as humans were created in the image of God. So when Jesus says, give to God what is God's, he's talking to you and I outside of politics, outside of all that mess. And he's saying, you, give your whole life to God. Do as Paul says in Romans 12, offer your bodies as living sacrifices to God that are pleasing to him. If you have never done that, I want to challenge you to consider doing that today. That the God who created you, who died so that you can be reconciled back to his family, so that you could be adopted into the family of God, is asking that you give your life to him. That may come at a cost and a sacrifice, just like we've been talking about today in the political realm, but I would say, I would go so far to say, that if you are willing to make that sacrifice, you will find a joy that Jesus described in the parable of the field in Matthew 13. Where there, a man who discovered a treasure hidden in a field sells everything that he has and buys that field because of his great joy. My prayer is that that would be your joy today. And that you would hear Jesus' words, even as he's navigating all of that political mess, that he's also speaking to us as humans. That at the end of the day, Jesus is asking not only that we submit to government and not only that we recognize that government is affected by Satan, but that ultimately, in spite of all of that, we give our lives to him first and foremost, and we call others to do the same. That's what it means to advance the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be the people of God. Let's pray. Father, uh, this is a difficult subject, a hard one, and I pray that it prompts good conversation and good uh, wrestling I'm grateful for the body here as they are thinking through this and wrestling through their role as Christians in this government. Lord, this is a difficult time for many people in this country, and I pray that as Christians we would be holy and just and outspoken voices for you, that even as we recognize the authority of government, we would work to correct and improve it and guide it back to its God-given purposes. And even as we're doing that, Lord, we would never trust the government to achieve the mission that you've given us, the church. It's really hard to know what that looks like, Lord, and we just pray that you would give us wisdom and perspective in the midst of all of it. In Jesus' name, amen.